What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Awesoming's podcast, where we highlight people pursuing their definition of, you guessed it, awesome. So buckle up and get ready for some more success story adventures and failures from Kentucky's tech and entrepreneur community. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Awesoming Podcast. These next two episodes go hand in hand because they are about a local election family, the Perez family. So this first conversation is one that we we dug back in the archives and brought back out from June of 2019. I think it was episode number 10 or 11 on our show originally. And the reason we're doing this is to highlight Rob Perez and his background in the restaurant and hospitality industry. Someone with a lot of success, but also someone who has recognized a very significant problem and started a concept called Deviate, which is a second chance employment opportunity. I've seen a lot of lives changed and we're very, very grateful for what he's done. And the next episode is going to be an interview with his daughter, Sam, because she's written a book about what the Perez family has done. Thank you all for what you're doing. Listeners, make sure you support their business and, uh, and share a great meal with your family and your friends. And again, we're making Kentucky a better place to live and work. So thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy these. Feeling good? Yeah. Awesome. I feel great. Well, hey, Rob, I am beyond excited to have you in our space at Awesome Inc. hanging out today because it's it's been great to get to know you over the last, what, two, two, three years? Yes, and sir. Just run around each other in Lexington and do life with, with each other. So, yeah, uh, for those of you who don't know Rob, Rob is the, the owner of both Solgood and Deviate in Lexington, Kentucky, and is a huge, huge effort in social entrepreneurship and just loving people very well. And so, Rob, I think that's that sums you up pretty quickly. Very kind introduction. Hey, it's also very true. And I'd like to just make sure that everybody knows that I acknowledge my wife as a co-owner as well. Yes, so she is. Just want to make sure that, uh, you know, there's harmony, you know, <laughs> a little harmony. I love it. Awesome. So, Rob, what's a, what's a bit of your background? How did you end up in Lexington or even Kentucky as a whole? And uh, how did you get end up getting involved within the entrepreneurial community? I know you have a different avenue, but with social entrepreneurship. What was the cause of that for you? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, um, I'm a farm kid and I wanted to find something easier than farming. So I fell into restaurants. Uh, and, uh, the cool story is, is the first day that I started at the first restaurant I ever worked at the first person, they said, Hey, let's take you around before we start your training and introduce you to people was a really sweet looking, uh, 18 year old hostess and I've been married to her for 31 years now. Oh really? Yeah. Man, that's so spicy. that was a pretty cool day. Uh, and, uh, so then I kind of made my way through the ranks. I worked at the hard rock cafe. I started with them when they were kind of a fledgling group, only six restaurants. And, um, they were kind of the toast of the town in the restaurant entertainment business. And I got to work my way up through operations and then development. I got a chance to do something I had no business doing, had no idea what I was doing. And we were growing so fast. They just gave me the opportunity and it was, it was wonderful. So my job would be to find restaurants, uh, develop them, strike the deal with the developers, the landlords, uh, work with the cities and be liaisons and then be the liaison for all construction, all operations, all design, everything, and then build it and turn it over to our operator at the end. So it was cool. Then, um, the president of, uh, of the hard rock after five years asked if, uh, I would be interested in going back to Disney where he originally came from. And we started up a division at Disney 
that created concepts, both food and entertainment concept uh, concepts outside of the berm of the theme park, leveraging div- Disney brands. And so uh, I was lucky to have dual roles there, both development and operations did it for almost eight years and it was good, you know, um, learned a bunch, but I knew that I didn't want to be in a corporate structure anymore. So um, 9-11 also happened, changed everything. And to be honest, I don't think that Disney uh, was the happiest place on earth to work. And uh, I didn't like it anymore. I didn't want to be there. Uh, They knew it and I knew it. So we came up with a a conclusion that would end in six months and uh, it worked out great. Um, I struck the deal before 9-11 and unfortunately we were the toast of the town uh, as a concept, um, ESPN zone, and even having the background of hard rock. And it seemed like I could get a job anywhere at the time. And God has a funny way of humbling you because when 9-11 happened, the whole fashion of restaurants completely changed. They went from big and flashy uh, in tourist destination spots and people were happy to pay for the flash uh, and buy t-shirts, which really fueled the whole profit margin. And, uh, Literally after 9-11, everybody wanted down and dirty. They wanted unique. They wanted, uh, they wanted something that was authentic, not flashy. So not only the fashion of the business that I had been in for almost 20 years had changed, but the need for someone like me went away. And so I didn't even have a place that anybody wanted me to come wow. because they felt as though with my background, I had too many assistants I had too many people reporting to me and I wasn't close enough to the ground to each of those silos, including my guests, my food and my staff. And it, 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 and it was kind of unfair because I came through the ranks and I understood it and I had to get there, but that was the perception of anybody that wanted to hire us. And so I really had to try to figure out how to reinvent my career. And so I started looking for places to land. And uh, it ended us up here with a Applebee's franchise here. And it was completely a bend in the road that I had taken before, but it was a step. And the interesting fact that some folks don't know is that my wife was a flight attendant uh, for the first, uh, until we started having children, first 13 years of, of our marriage. And we just happened to end up here a couple of times. Uh, I went on trips with her whenever I could. And, and we were walking around in the snow on Christmas one day and we had just eaten a Joe Bologna's and, uh, and, uh, I literally told her and she said at the same time, wow, this is a really livable place. We could live in Lexington, Kentucky. And at the time we were living in Miami or, you know, Orlando, I'm not sure. And, uh, and the idea is, is that we always remembered that. And so when we were looking for jobs, we really chose the place more than the company. And uh, we came here and did that for two years and it was time to leave there. Um, And uh, my wife, I had begged to allow us to open up a restaurant, but she was always concerned. And uh, at the end of the day, she acquiesced and we uh, decided to open up uh, Saul Good. And that was 11 years ago. So, wow, that is that is so much more than I ever realized, man. 
Yeah. So real quickly, I want to, I want to say that you, you're, you're well suited. And again, you just touched on it, that you are very immersed in all of your different restaurant background. So from your hard rock to Applebee's now to Solgut and deviate, what would you say was your very first uh, point of entry into the restaurant world? And on that journey, again, you, you talked about going from like development to owning restaurants. What, where did you initially think you were going to go from your first restaurant, which was hard rock? Oh gosh. I, I just, <laughs> I mean, when I started hard rock, I was in the middle of addiction too. And so it was more of a party than a profession, to be honest. I was always serious about my profession and I worked really hard. And the cool thing about being a farm kid is you're not afraid to work hard. And the reality of this whole thing is, is that I feel so lucky to have that farm background and work really hard and know how to work physically hard that it served me so well in an industry that really is just kind of understanding how to become sophisticated now. So the long and the short of it is, is that I got a lot of credit for working really hard and I was lucky enough to have the heredity that helped me think really deeply about things. And so the ability to work hard as a blue collar worker and think hard as a, as a white collar worker really suited me well in the restaurant industry. I can't imagine me being able to do as well in any other, uh, really in any other, I guess, career. And, uh, I mean, I barely have a high school degree. Really? Yeah. To know that. I cheated my way through that too, by the way. And times are different now. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So you, you talked about how you, you you know, you were on Christmas, it was Christmas day and you were here with your wife and you're like, wow, Lexington's a very, it's it's a memorable place. I I could see ourselves living here. How did, how did Solgood formulate, you know, you talked about people didn't want flashy. They wanted something authentic and unique. How did Solgood, you know, over a decade ago develop out of a a flame flight to, uh, to Lexington? Great question. Well, um, we were trying to figure out how to develop something with the name ESPN in it, some entertainment idea. And we were in the Hancock building in downtown Chicago, and we were conducting focus groups uh, with people in Chicago because our focus for the very first whatever ESPN thing we were going to build was going to be in Chicago at, originally. And we went into really a whole evening of focus groups. And the funny thing was, is that they got these, there was three separate groups and they divided it up into unaided questions where they didn't place any perception of what they were doing, just left it completely broadly and asked questions and then aided questions in the second half. Well, each of the three groups unanimously when there was an unaided question like, so tell me what would work best in Chicago? What kind of restaurant, what kind of entertainment complex would work best in Chicago? And as loudly and as quickly and as definitively as possible, every single person says, oh, whatever you do, don't do a sports bar. Don't do anything to do with sports. And they kept on drilling down and we're, you know, everybody that's there that's trying to open up something that's a sports concept is all deflated and it gets worse. I mean, it was like, 
hey, you know, sports concepts are completely ubiquitous. I mean, Chili's, Fridays, everybody is a sports bar. And so don't do that. Well, uh, buyers are liars. Uh, so the second half of this is that they said, okay, now what kind of sports what, or what kind of restaurant or entertainment complex do you think Chicago is ready to have if it had the name ESPN attached to it? Then it wasn't anything but positive, mainly from the men. The women were kind of lukewarm still. And I realized that the women were more focused on, on really not having a sports bar on the first part of the focus group. And so I started thinking about that. And I ran across this data that said that women decide 76% of the time where people eat. And I started thinking, okay, so the women didn't want a sports concept. We're opening a sports concept and I wanted to know why. And so I tore it all apart. And in that, in that kind of process, I never forgot it. And when I, uh, started thinking and dreaming about opening up our own place, I went right there. And I thought, is there a way to build a restaurant that wouldn't void a woman's opinion or a woman's desire to go to it? If you could make a zero veto vote from every woman, what would you build? And so we really built the concept of Saul Good around the idea that no woman should say no. And every guy hopefully doesn't even know that, you know, that's what it's built for. But really, it's a, it's a, it's really a restaurant that women won't hate. So won't say no to like no, no woman, you know, that's the goal. That is that is shocking to me. Wow. I, I had I had no idea. That's that's a really cool story. And I think what's, what's great is you had so much customer discovery with that and you, you, you figured out who your audience would be. And again, uh, it sounds like women are very decisive when they want to eat. And I know I'm pretty much go with the flow. So yeah, that's, that's cool to know. And that makes a lot of sense. And is that something that you found in Lexington specifically that women would not say no when they come to your restaurant? Well, no, I think that it's nationwide, Okay, but how do you apply it without making the man feel uncomfortable? I mean, our whole organizing principle is based on an urban legend that we built. And that was that Saul Good grew up on the East Coast, the son of a jeweler, and that they were a jewelry family. And he was convinced he was going to be in the jewelry business. He went every Saturday to work in the jewelry store and he learned the trade from his dad. But what he loved best about Saturdays was going to the local restaurants with all of the buddies of his parents and talking about what happened that day, how things were going. And Saul Good did go in. His name was Saul Good, by the way. Like he it. did like go it. in. He did go into the jewelry business and and would travel to buy and sell jewelry in particular in Belgium. Fell in love with the waffles, the, you know, the chocolate uh, and, you know, the beer. And so the idea, he had to go to Belgium all the time because Antwerp is the, is the European diamond mart. Um, and then he would go sell stuff in Asia, you know, the West Coast. And we took all of our menu items and based it around that story. And so the idea is, is that Saul Good did the jewelry store for 20 years and he fell out of love with 
really the the jewelry business and in love with just entertaining and food. He always loved that interaction every since he was a kid on Saturdays. So he converted the jewelry uh, store into Saul Good Restaurant and Pub. And that's why we have, it looks like, you know, if you really look hard, there's jewelry cases that the bar is made out of. The walls have mirrors on it. So, you know, because women would look at their women or men would look at their jewelry in the, in the mirror. And the reason we pick jewelry is because it's a parallel product that predominantly women like. And so we thought that if we had gold walls, ruby red, you know, soffits and, uh, you know, mahogany bars, hostess stand and everything that, that it would connect with that on a very subtle way that guys wouldn't recognize but women might identify with so that the, what is that thing that you can't explain that draws you to a product? And that was the idea. You guys were so thorough. I, I am, I'm so impressed. Wow. That's, that's amazing, Rob. I think that's, you have probably been the, the most thorough person I've talked with in terms of finding out the why. I mean, that definitely, there's a big draw to that. And I think that's really, really savvy. Thank so you. oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So Rob, I want to ask you one question, uh, kind of to, I want to, I want to gear the conversation towards, uh, towards what you're doing presently, mm -hmm. but I want to know along the way, did you have any mentors? Some of the people that we have sat down with talked very highly of the mentors that they've had and how a, a few people were, were very integral in shaping them to think very business minded or business oriented and the way they approach things. And I want to know if you had any mentor along the way that, uh, that somehow guided you through all of this, this restaurant craziness that you've experienced? Um, honestly, I've never not had a mentor. Really? I mean, now it's not a formal thing, but I've always had a boss that I always wanted to know from. I've always struck up a good relationship with one boss all the way along the line. And I just poured into him and they in turn poured into me. I showed loyalty. I showed, uh, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to make it work. And in turn, most of my bosses gave me a promotion or a project or were so doggone hard on me that it basically tempered me to do a good job. And every boss I've ever had has been so hard on me, to be honest. And it really forced me to examine the best way to do things because they were so on top of me. And so I would say first Marshall McCall in California at uh, the first restaurant I worked at, then I would say that Jim Stanley at, at, at the hard rock, uh, was awesome for me. And then, um, at, at Disney, it was, you know, Art Levitt and they were always super high performers and they kicked my butt. I mean, totally kicked my butt all the way along. Hey, that's, that's how you get better, man. That that's really exciting. What does it look like for you to have uh, a mentor nowadays in Lexington? Well, it's a little bit different way. I, I, I now have kind of converted that to spiritual and life kind of mentors. And, uh, I still am inquisitive. I still am interested and, um, for the first time in my life, since I've probably in my late forties and I'm 54 now, um, you know, I'm trying to find it through scripture, trying to find it through prayer. And, uh, I'm trying to learn, uh, you know, from the word of God. And so, uh, I do a little bit less, 
of the physical person, but I try to get it from as many people as I possibly can. And I never stop asking questions and, you know, Hey, can you help me think about this? And Hey, can you help me collaborate with this? And then I'm just a sponge on how they do it, why they do it. What do they think? How can they, they're successful at something. I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. So I want to glom onto them. I love that. Super encouraging, Rob. Super encouraging. Thanks for that. So speaking uh, along people, Robbie, you have highly emphasized how throughout the restaurant industry and just your time in the professional world that you've always been surrounded by people. And I want to know what have been some of your greatest successes and failures. So how have both of these been learning lessons that have shaped uh, how you run your business today? Yeah. So for most of my career, it was only about a bottom line. And I would run through people, I would run over people, and I would crush them to reach the financial bottom line. And if I thought it was right, I didn't even consider who you were, what you were all about, who your family was. It didn't matter to me. This was all a gigantic game. And my biggest failure is my lack of relationships for the bulk of my career based on my own I guess, self-interest. And I'm most embarrassed about that. And I have lots of regret and I have a lot of sorrow over it. And uh, I hope that I'm doing a lot to change that mentality. And uh, I was wrong and I'm sorry for the people I hurt and disregarded. And I am consciously praying, thinking, and being deliberate about being different today. Well, I'm not a fast learner. Okay. <laughs> and I can kind of trace any success that I've ever had with an absolute failure. And I have never, ever learned anything that I've done well. I've only learned when I've screwed up. And I'm, I am confident in my opinion sometimes to a fault. And so I would go through thinking I knew stuff and I didn't, even with good advice. So I think that some of the failures that I've had that were devastating that I had to learn from, one was addiction. I had to go through a really, you know, tough personal time figuring out my addiction and how it was going to fit into my life, into really my marriage into my work life because I'm in the restaurant industry and it was difficult. Um, that was probably one of the most poignant things that have happened. And, um, you know, I think my wife and I went through some really difficult times where we didn't know if we were going to make it. And that really stilled myself and it made me understand what's important and that, that people are just as important as accomplishments. And I don't know if I treated life that way before. Um, you know, and there's probably a fairly strong uh, argument that says that after my addiction uh, and I got into recovery, I switched my addiction to work to fill me up instead of, you know, something more appropriate like God and your family and all that. I used work as a, as a, as something to fill the void with. Mm, Rob, that's, that's wonderful. Well, not, didn't start off wonderful. <laughs> hey, hey, that's, that's true. Yeah, it's evident of that, but yeah, it's, it's great to see that your eyes have almost been opened to how, how you, how you treated people and, and the value that people do have. 
I know that actually part of your story, it, it feeds into what you were currently doing. And again, earlier we talked about how you were known for your social entrepreneurism. And I want to know exactly what does that look like to you before we move on to the next question? Yeah. I mean, I think that social entrepreneurism to me is something that I had to craft in my head after doing research. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and what we came up with is there's, you know, a fairly significant movement that uses something called the triple bottom line. And that is uh, to be financially stable and monitor your bottom line financially, just like every business does, um, to make social impact within uh, you know, your business as broadly and as deeply as you can. And then lastly, do it for a higher purpose. And, uh, ours just happens to be Christianity, but when we work with our folks, we want them to know that's our story and we'd love for them to consider it. But at the end of the day, that's their decision. Um, a lot of secular, uh, data that says that, that folks that bring a higher purpose to work every day are better at their jobs and, and like their jobs more. So there's a lot of reasons to do it. So really, I think that those are the things that are important to us. The quality in the first piece is what I think most social entrepreneurs don't carry that we try to carry. So. Yeah. Can you speak into that real quickly by what you mean about quality? We really dove into other social uh, businesses and respectfully, they all are doing a good job. Uh, the one thing that I will tell you is, is that we didn't see much quality, quality in uh, product, quality in experience and quality in atmosphere. And I got, I got scared. Uh, the social, um, the social business that we built is 100% my wife's idea, not mine. I told her it couldn't work. And the, and the reality of it is, is that I didn't think it could work because our past of hiring people that had a past of an addiction was terrible. We spent a lot of money to train, a lot of money to onboard, and we would get like two weeks out of it, two weeks worth of, of tenure. And, and then secondly, when I saw that there was not quality, um, generally like, like of 20 businesses, let's say that we analyzed none of them were better than their competition. Four of them, I'd say, were equal to their competition. And I'd say that probably 16 were 20% worse than their competition. And they were relying solely on people's hearts to continue to purchase product from them just to keep going or uh, very kind people that would give donations. And I just sat there and went, man, I'm worried that the social uh, restaurant that Diane wants to do is just going to be doomed to failure if we're not good. If we don't have good food, good product, good atmosphere, good service. And I was afraid that maybe that folks with a past addiction couldn't carry it off. And I thought that this was a pretty big, you know, bite to, to chew. Yeah. And I didn't know how to make this work. And so Diane used really four or five major themes with me to convince me that it, we should do it, even if we lost everything. Well, I agreed to do it uh, after she really pushed and challenged me. But in the back of my head, I realized that I couldn't run something that was going to teach someone how to get fired 
by being average or even worse below average, we, it was our obligation to try to figure out how to be 20% better than our, than our best competition. At least that's our goal. And so our hope is, is that when the folks leave, uh, they're going to understand specifically how can my performance at work, how can I build relationships at work that earn me a raise, that earn me a promotion, that keep me sustainably employed for the rest of my life and get the connection. And, uh, and that's what we wanted to do. That was really important to us. Well, Rob, I, as, as your friend, I can validate that your food is excellent and the atmosphere, the quality, the people you employ, they're really great. And so like, I always enjoy coming either if it's, uh, with my friends or on a date or with my family to any of your restaurants, it's always a pleasure. So Hope you know that many people think that you're very kind, well, very truthful as well. Thank you. Um, so I want I want to talk quickly again. We're naturally we're we're kind of going towards uh, what you're doing now, and I want to ask um, how how common is is addiction in the restaurant business? Because I know for for you personally, that has been uh, a reason you started your restaurant currently called Deviate. And I want to kind of want to know some of the backstory as to some of the some of the issues that you've spoken about, and to how that led you to formulate. Hey. We need to give people a second chance. I want them to know that we value them. We believe in them and we know they're capable. And uh, yeah, would you mind speaking into some of those experiences that led to deviate? Yeah. As it relates to the restaurant industry in general, I believe that addiction um, is either attracted to the restaurant industry or the restaurant industry <laughs> attracts addiction. I'm not sure, but it seems like the propensity, uh, you know, is higher to have an addiction issue. And I think it's fairly practical. I mean, it is a, a job that you could have, whether you're a college student or a professional um, service professional. And it, it's something that you can get out of if you have a hot date, a, a big exam, um, or you have a hangover. There's always someone that can pick up your shift. Secondly, it's generally a tip cash environment. So if you need it, you can get it and whatever you need, you can get. And it's immediate. It's instant gratification, cash, money in the pocket. And then the converse is also true. If you need rent, if you need money, if you need to score, <laughs> you can work three or four shifts in a row and pick it up fairly easy by just asking a favor from someone. So then you have extra cash and um, then lastly, because it's half college kids and half service professionals, it, it becomes an environment where everybody's close and everybody has access to alcohol and drugs. And, and it's a point in time when college uh, kids are exploring their own independence and they're, and they're kind of trying to figure out who they are and they don't want to be their parents. And that's natural. And so exploration um, with partying uh, sometimes happens frequently. And I think that that's probably fair to say. And, uh, and so that perpetuates itself. And, and that's what happened to me. And so um, I think that this is a typical phenomenon in the restaurant industry. And don't forget, the restaurant industry now is the largest employer in the U.S. And so... Let's say that there is as a percentage <clears throat> more people that uh, 
as a percentage are has addiction in the restaurant industry. It's also the biggest industry. So that's kind of, you know, sobering, excuse the pun, uh, to, to, to contemplate. Um, so yeah, I think it's prevalent. That sounds like you, you know, more of that than I ever will. Wow. That's yeah. And you've had a, to walk through that yourself and also work through that. And again, how did, uh, how did all this lead to the restaurant you founded, uh, alongside some, some wonderful people and your wife, uh, deviate? Well, Diane, again, used levers to convince me. She says the restaurant industry has a problem. Uh, at the time when she started kind of pushing me, we had lost 12 people to addiction. Now we've lost 16 in three restaurants in 11 years. Or I'm sorry, four restaurants now in 11 years. And so uh, she was saying like, hey, look, uh, you stood on the backs of these people and profit on them. Why don't you do it? I mean, she got down, down on me. And I kept on saying no because of what I'd mentioned before. Then the best server we ever had, we caught doing heroin in our bathroom. And we built a relationship around her, gave a second chance to her, but didn't know how to manage someone in recovery and didn't know how to validate it. It led to us finding out that she was still doing heroin after seven months and we'd become friends with her. And we, we again let her go. She went to rehab uh, six months, extensive, you know, detox, uh, behavior modification, uh, therapy, and in, you know, really a big inpatient push to try to help her get her head right. She went out and got a job. She got one right away because she was special, incredibly special, still is. Um, and she got a job at a fancy urban supermarket and, um, they let her go because she, <laughs> she had a background that had a drug possession and, um, and a shoplifting. And so that was heartbreaking. And Diane goes, look at how our society eliminates opportunity for someone that has made a mistake automatically and systematically employers in America don't ask anybody about their addiction. They just don't interview them because they have a gap in their employment history. And she says, if they knew that she had gone through rehab, would they give them, give them a chance? But we aren't even hardwired today to even think about that question. We don't contemplate it. And it's funny, we don't really contemplate recidivism. And I mean recidivism with people going back to addiction from recovery. And we don't really consider... Uh, our role when it comes to recidivism, people going back to prison, why wouldn't we understand that we're part of the problem? Because once the jail cell, once they're released, the jail cell wall doesn't go away. The jail cell wall is now invisible, but it goes in front and in between the person that's trying to apply for a job and the boss. It goes in between the person that's trying to get an apartment and the person that's going to rent them an apartment. It goes in front of the person that's trying to vote, right? I mean, if you can't get a job, you can't get an apartment, you don't have any representation, why wouldn't you go back to that way of life and end up back in prison? If there's no hope, there's no hope. Man, Rob, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you are making a change, and it's very evident that 
this is something so important to you and, and your family. And I think it's beautiful that you guys are giving people that second chance. And I know that's, that's the mission of deviate and you, you are giving people who have, you know, relapsed or been in jail a chance to come to work because everything you're saying is right. We, we often as people drop the ball over and over again with willing to reach out our hand and help someone when it's tough, when it's dirty, when it's, when it's unattractive. And, uh, yeah, I, I understand exactly your thought there. I had a friend who had some, had some substance issues and they had to go to rehab and it was a difficult journey. Just, just willing to not want to give up on them, honestly. And I know that we had some tough conversations about a year, year and a half ago when they were walking through some of this. And, uh, sometimes when you don't, don't know what to do, you do nothing mm. and you're, you're more afraid of being vulnerable and helping them. So, man, I'm, I'm so appreciative. And I know many people are, uh, for what Diane and you do. Mm. Yeah. So. Thank you. No, thank you. And it's, it's great. So if you guys haven't been to either Saga or Deviate, I would highly encourage you to go. They have some wonderful people there. And uh, it's a place where it's, it's very life-giving. I think that's one thing that's most enjoyable about your, your establishments is their life-giving, whether if it's through good food or conversation. Rob, if you could travel back in time, knowing what you know now at, at 54, what's one thing you would tell your 25-year-old self that would be beyond helpful? I think that I would tell uh, the 25 year old Rob that he's not the center of the universe, that there's a God that would love him if he would let God love him. And I couldn't get out of the rut of trying to be in control and trying to run my life and trying to run everybody around me. And it was exhausting. And uh, I wish I would have had way more faith at 25. I know it's very easy to get caught up in your world when you're, again, you're, you're running a company, you are, it's, it's your pride and joy and you're, you're the head of honcho. I know it's very easy to get wrapped in, keep your focus directly on, on you and making sure that, you know, the lights are on, you're, you're paying bills, people, again, you're, you're on people's, people are on your back, excuse me. And so, yeah, it's very easy to get wrapped up in, I, I understand that. So what's, what is some advice maybe other than, you know, giving more of the humble approach that you would give to anyone who is interested either in starting some sort of startup, whether it's like tech related or not, or someone who's interested in social entrepreneurism. What is, what is some of the advice that you think is, is like you should know it's, it's a must know to, to succeed. I think that um, the advice would be ex exactly the same for a for-profit or a social impact business. And it would be um, through the example of my life, I always was searching for more when I had the coolest job, the highest paying job, the what looked like the coolest situation, and uh, I was doing well in a cool office, right? But I was always still searching for something. And the reality of it is no matter what you do in business, if you can incorporate thinking of others as much as yourself and maybe even before yourself, and if you can bring a higher purpose to work, it totally changes everything. Conversely to the fancy jobs I used to have, I'm basically, you know, a busboy now and I'm not getting paid very much. I've had two days off in two years. And honestly, it's the best job I've ever had because I'm contemplating running a business for someone other than me. And I, I bring, God to work every day. And it's something I never did before. 
And so I can just tell you from my experience, having a focus of other people and a higher power, I, I think is very, very compelling for anybody that wants to have an awesome life. I guess one of the things in, in our lives that really blow me away is that I had a, a, a 10th grade teacher ask me once this question. He said, Hey Perez, why did man not fly 50 years before the Wright brothers? And I'm like, I don't know. It's pretty abstract. I don't you know. And he pressured me to try to figure it out. And 10 minutes, 15 minutes went by. I didn't know. And finally he had to give me the answer because I was so frustrated. He says, we didn't fly as man 50 years before the Wright brothers, even though we had the technology, we had everything 50 years prior, but we didn't fly because we thought we couldn't. And going into the second chance opportunity uh, business, I've realized that that's our approach. And we aren't even contemplating that we should help people because we think we can't. We think that really helping people uh, to prevent them from going back to drugs or, or prison is too hard and it'll never work. And the connection that really makes the difference is not transactions like giving money or going to Thanksgiving dinner and serving the homeless. It's really, really about relationships. The only hope we have as a society is to stop a second and literally get our hands dirty, screw up our schedules, uh, and just have a relationship with someone that needs it. Because most of these folks hadn't had a good parental experience where they chose to drug during the middle of the formative years where they were trying to learn how to be independent. And I would just try to ask your, your audience to contemplate what we can do instead of what just is impossible and try to do it for people and incorporate that relationship model into everybody's corporate culture. And uh, I challenge you to stop worrying about recycling things like cans and paper and start repurposing people and having relationships. That's great. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it, guys. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Awesomeings Podcast. And another quick thank you to Lee Rosevere and a few members from our community who provide the music that you hear in this show. Lastly, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, all that jazz. Or even better, come on down to our space. Come be a part of our community and get plugged in. And let's start something awesome together. You guys rock. We'll see you next time.